Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Hi, and welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. We're grateful for them. Every question is an actual question from an It Is Written viewer, and it's great for us to be able to answer those questions because it's always the case that if someone had the question, someone else did as well. So with me is Wes Peppers. Thanks for being here, Wes. Thank you, Pastor John. Good to be here. We're going to start with a question from Anthony. I'll pitch it to you. Some say Eve lied when she told the serpent that God said, don't eat it or touch it, speaking of the fruit. Mm -hmm. How could Eve have lied prior to sin entering the world? Surely God must have told her not to touch it. Is that correct? Yeah, because God says, don't eat the fruit. Eve said to the serpent, God has said, don't eat it or touch it. Well, how would she know not to touch it if God had not told her? She didn't get that from herself. So obviously, obviously she got it from God. Did she make it up? And no, she didn't make it up. Um, God would have warned them about that. He probably would have warned them about the devil. The fact that the Bible doesn't say a specific thing happened doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means the Bible didn't say it. Well, particularly in this case, when Eve is the one saying yeah, that it happened. God has said, surely yeah. she wasn't lying, of course. God would have told her that for sure. How do you take the creation story and distill it down into a handful of verses? And the whole story about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and boil that down and just do a handful of verses. That's what the Bible has done. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, Cain killed Abel. Cain went off and married some woman. Well, where did that come from? When the questions arise, because not all of the gaps have been filled in. That's it. And God would have us use our sanctified reasoning. Mm-hmm. It's reasonable to assume that if Eve said God said this, then she meant what she said. Because For then sure. the first sin wouldn't have been eating the fruit. That's it. The first sin would have been that lie that was told. That's right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so the Bible often just states the, the very plain facts. Like when, for instance, the example of Cain killing Abel. It doesn't talk about everything that led up to that, but there were things that he just didn't decide. He wasn't perfectly righteous and then decided, boom, I'm going to kill my brother. Right. Other things would have led up to that. The Bible doesn't say, but they're there. And so we don't use the sanctified imagination to go off and say things contrary to the Bible. That's right. But there are things that would have happened, obviously, that led up to those things. Sure. Keep it within the parameters of the Bible. Don't let your... You're, you're thinking draggy outside of that. And that's when some say she lied, that's what they're doing. Failing to realize or entertain the idea that God may have said more to Eve than was actually recorded there in Scripture that first time around. Okay, Paula asks us, well, she states, some preachers say you go straight to heaven when you die, and others say you sleep. Why do they disagree when there's only one Bible. So, I mean, the question's about death, but it's also about the way people approach the Bible and relate to the Bible. Mm -hmm. So while some say you go to heaven when you die, they're wrong. They're mistaken. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus is asleep. Lazarus' sister said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. 
the dead sleep and they wait in the grave until the resurrection. Okay, that's clear. That's really clear. We've talked about that again and again because obviously it's a really popular and very important question. So why then do people say you go straight to heaven? Partly it's because of the way they read the Bible. You know, yes. as it's written in most Bibles, it seems that Jesus says to the thief on the cross, hey, buddy, when you die, I'm going to see you in heaven, even though Sunday morning came by and Jesus hadn't been to heaven. So doesn't mean what some people think it might mean. Uh, some people say that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That verse is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. Read that verse. You'll discover it doesn't say that. And I don't mean it doesn't mean that, even though it doesn't. It simply doesn't say that. So, Wes, I'm saying this. Some people believe you die and go straight to heaven because of the way they read the Bible. Maybe they're a little confused by that. Are there other reasons? Sure. Well, people want to be comforted about their loved ones that they've lost and they've cared about. They want to make sure and know that they're okay, that they're in a good place, that they're not suffering or hurting or in any bad kind of uh, situation. And so sometimes emotion can play a role in that. The other thing is that over time, time is a, is a huge factor in how people think. And so over time, people have read certain verses the wrong way, and they develop a theology out of them, and they begin, people, they begin to share that, and people begin to believe it. You know, there was a lot of money made off of this idea Ooh, in the Dark Ages. Yeah. So that can be another reason. People just are simply corrupt. Some people are innocently ignorant. Some people are willfully ignorant. Some people are just corrupt. And so a combination of all those things can lead people to share and preach the wrong thing. It's really difficult for some people to step out of what they've been taught and raised in, even when you present them with clear, clear evidence, right? That's right. And you could think about examples of that in the secular world that is outside of church where people believe funny old things and you can show them evidence that they're wrong, that's not enough. Yes. Because yes. they believe what they believe, and they want to believe what they want to believe, and come what may, you cannot change their mind. That's what happens in church as well. That's right. It's really clear that the dead sleep and don't go straight to heaven upon death. I mean, if they did, why, pray tell, would there be a resurrection? I mean, the ridiculous thought. Show somebody that they can read it and go, nah. Because I've always thought this. I've always believed this. My father taught this. The preacher says this. What we would encourage you to do is take your faith, your belief system from the Bible. Study the Bible. When you hear a new idea like this, it's not easy just to flip right away. So gather the evidence. Search your Bible. Pray about it. And ask God to lead you according to his word. I'd rather be corrected by God so I can stand with him than be left to, to, to believe whatever it was I was taught when I was two, three, five, five, six, seven years of age and be wrong. I'd rather stand with Jesus than be wrong, even if it means uh, having to be corrected. And it's not just a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of honoring God. We honor God when we believe the word of God. Okay, let's have a look at our next question. This comes from Stuart. How can someone pray and ask God to forgive, yet this person doesn't forgive the individual that offended them? Mm. 
How can you pray and ask God to forgive you if you don't forgive somebody else? Well, I don't think you can. Jesus said that you have to forgive even as God has forgiven you. And we've said this before, but sometimes people equate forgiveness with trust and and regaining confidence in that person. You might still feel like they're not really repentant of what they've done, and they could do it to someone else. And that's okay. You don't have to trust them. But to forgive them is an act that you choose to do. It's not a feeling. It's not something that is thrown upon you. But if you're unwilling, I, I actually had a relative that had a very estranged uh, relationship with their another relative in the family, I'll just say it that way, and they just could not forgive him. That person went and apologized to the other relative three different times, very sincerely, and they said, oh, they didn't mean it. Well, they didn't mean it, and I, and I don't believe it, and I don't accept it. And to this day, they're still estranged. It's been over 10 years. And that's just all the while still preaching and believing in God and, oh, yeah. and this kind of thing and talking about others who won't forgive. And so I, I just don't think you've really fully experienced the forgiveness of God that you can and should if you're not able to forgive. Because if you have, that would transform you and you would recognize more than anyone else, you need to be forgiven and you would extend that to others. So it, it's a hard thing. You have to be sensitive because... People get hurt, but at the same time, you have to be straightforward. This is what the Bible says it teaches. God has forgiven us. Mm-hmm. We've got to forgive others. That's it. Hey, and by the way, I don't mean to drag this on, but, but I'll drag it on a little bit. Not forgiving is bad for you. It's physically bad for you. It's emotionally bad for you. It's interpersonally bad for you. When you forgive somebody, you're not freeing them. You're freeing you freeing yourself. Okay. Veronica asks a multi-part question regarding tithing. Family member died, and here are the questions. Should I return tithe on my share of the life insurance? Number one. Well, let's deal with that. Yes or no? Sure enough. That's increase, right? The Bible says... Return tithe on the increase. And if that's an increase to you, that would be something to return tithe on. What about financial gifts they gave me during their lives and didn't expect me to pay back? Oh, I would have thought you might have tithed at the time. I would think so, that you would tithe at the time. But if God's bringing it to your mind, maybe he's impressing upon you to do that. And uh, I wouldn't think God would not bless you if you did do it. I think it'd be a good idea. When the house sells... And uh, she receives money from that. Should she tithe on that? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Uh, that's also an increase. You would not You would um, tithe on the profit of that house. If, there's been, if you've done work done, you wouldn't tithe on what you're gaining yeah, back from that. Yeah, but assuming no, the family member had that. And so this, it, is, this is like a gift. Yeah. It's probably important to note, too, you may or may not be in this situation, but others might be. If you, if you're, let's say you're the executor and you get, let's just say, $100,000 and that's to be divided four ways, maybe those other people are not believers or whatever, it's not your responsibility to tithe on their portion. Yeah. You would tithe on the portion that comes to you personally. So as the executor, unless, of course, the person uh, who died explicitly said that in their will. So we don't want to get into financial 
uh, advice, but that's a spiritual issue. Um, but certainly, I think any one of those scenarios would be acceptable. By the way, we want to say our heart was out to you for the loss of your loved one and anyone that's had that situation. It's, it's tough, and, uh, you know, the Lord will draw close to you and give you his peace, but our hearts are with you on that. Now, now after all that, I'm going to add that Veronica sure. wrote, I think I should return tithe on all of this, but I wanted to check. You're so on that's the right good. track. Hey, listen, you get a windfall, of $100,000. Now, somebody might say, oh, I've got to give 10000 bucks to God. No, hang on a minute. You say, great. Yeah. I've got $10,000 to give to God. And, and I would be saying, not just the tithe, but I would give offering on that as well. That's a wonderful opportunity to bless the work of God and move the gospel forward and to demonstrate faithfulness to God. Tithing's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And God says, if you tithe, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing, you won't be able to receive it. Yeah. Now, I want, to, I want to say this. Where we work, that is in the denomination we are a part of, ministers of the gospel, if, 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 if their church brings in $100 million worth of tithe, not that it would, it doesn't impact their paycheck at all. Nope. When we encourage people to tithe, we, there's no benefit personally or, or should I say financially it shouldn't be like that for ministers of the gospel. Yes. The reason that I would encourage you to tithe this because that is that's that that unleashes blessing in your life. I wouldn't lie to you and say, well, if you send us a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, God's going to pour the finances on you. I will promise you that if you're faithful to God, He'll be faithful to you. We can promise you that. We'll be back with more line upon line in just a moment. This quarter on Sabbath School, we're looking at God's mission, my mission. What can you do to share the gospel in your world? What can I do to share the gospel in my world? We're looking at very, very practical things that will help us to know how we can be more effective in sharing that gospel with other people, with the people that God brings across our paths, with the people that we pray for, with the people in our families, with the people who live next door. And we have a wonderful group of authors contributors who are joining us each week. Amy, you're one of the authors of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson. Tell us a little bit about it. So this quarter we're looking at what is our mission message and how do we share that message with people who come from a completely different background than we do? How can we share it in an appealing, a relevant, and attractive way for those who need to hear it? And if that's something that you would like to know about, make sure that you join us each and every week for a brand new episode here on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line with Wes Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw. We are answering your Bible questions. They're questions from It Is Written viewers. If you have a question you'd like answered, we're inviting you to email us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Here's a question, and it comes from Emily. And the question is, why is revenge allowed in the Old Testament and forbidden in the New Testament? An interesting question. I don't think it's allowed in either testament. I think you're right. And God says in numerous places, even in the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Now, it's interesting that in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, God says something very similar, Romans 12 and verse 19. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So, In that passage, he's not only stating that, but he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. 
And so God says the best way to give back at your enemies, Emily, is in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so God teaches that principle all through both the Old and New Testament. Hey, what about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Yeah, that, that wasn't vengeance, that was justice. That's right. And God determined who would uh, have that done to them. And so um, God is about justice, not about vengeance. And really, when God says vengeance is mine, it's not he's taking vengeance against sin, not against people. And so sadly, people fall under that judgment because they're possessing the sin. But still, God is about justice and mercy. Kathy writes and says, My son and I are new Christians, and we have some questions. In the story of David and Bathsheba, David isn't punished by God for his sin. Why is God playing favorites here? Frankly, I think David was punished for his sin. and was some pretty stiff punishment. The child that was conceived died. David went through terrible, terrible anguish. Now, Wes, you're a parent. I'm a parent. So if God had, had, had I don't know what, caused half of David's cattle to die or his home to burn down, I don't know what, what it would be, yeah. he'd get over that pretty quickly. Sure. Losing his child, ooh, that was forever a pain in his heart reminding him that he should not have done what he yes. did. There was the guilt that he had to, had to deal with, but Kathy would say that's not punishment. I think David suffered pretty good. Yeah. If you said half, but even if I lost every earthly thing, I'd rather lose that than to lose a child. But not just the son that he lost, but the sons that were left behind, the living sons. They began, they said, well, if dad can do it, we can do it. Ooh. And they had all, he had all kinds of repercussions from that and anguish and his sons going astray and doing all these wrong acts. Later he had Absalom and this type of thing. And so he suffered greatly through not just the death of the one son, but through the life of the living sons. Brought him terrible heartache. Amen. Here's a question from Tina. Matthew 24, 34, speaking about the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says, This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What am I missing? So let's have to take a look. Yeah, let's take a look. Verses Matthew 24 and verse 34. Talking about the return of Jesus in verse 30. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Verse 31, He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They'll gather together as elect from the four winds. Learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. What generation is he talking about? He's not talking about the generation that he was living in. He's talking about the generation that would see all of those signs because the whole chapter is about the signs of his coming at the end of time. So the generation that's living then would not pass when they're seeing the signs before he comes. Amen. Simple as that. What does the Bible say about our pets in heaven? Hmm. Do they have souls like humans do? If not, is it safe to say our earthly pets will not be in heaven with us? 
That question is from Layla. Why don't we look at the second part of that question? Do they have souls like humans do? Well, I would say um, like humans, surely. A human being is the combination of body and breath. Uh, The Bible says the Lord God formed man of the dust of of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So a soul is not what you have. A soul is what you are. And I know your head starts to spin when you hear that for the very first time, but that's actually the, what the Bible teaches. A soul isn't something you have. When you die, it doesn't go on living. It's not something that you could capture and contain and put in a box or a jar. You are a soul, combination of body and breath. Animals, it is safe to say, are the same. They're the combination of a body and breath that keeps them going. Now, what does the Bible say about our pets being here? Man, this is the question of questions for it's many question people. the question of the ages. This is the big are, one. You know, what uh, about that's my right. cat? That's right. Well, I have, I have had pets, and I have a dog right now that I'm particularly fond of. I yeah. like my pets. And so what the Bible doesn't say is that when Jesus comes back, he's, you see all these uh, people that are resurrected. you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then following them are their goats and their cattle. Goldfish. The goldfish. So there's no resurrection of animals. But when it's all said and done and God creates the earth new, could he recreate those pets that we loved? He could. Surely. He could if he wanted to. Will he? We don't know. He might. He might not. It would be nice if they are, but if they're not, God will have something much more wonderful for us. We do know that Jesus died so that we might live, and we do know that there will be a resurrection of people. There's nothing in the Bible at all about the resurrection of frill-necked lizards and hamsters. Not to say they won't be in heaven, but we don't read about that. Here's what I can tell you of a certainty. If God knows that in order for you to be truly content in heaven, that your pets need to be there, undoubtedly they'd be there. I think that's fair, yeah. If God knows that it is important for your eternal happiness for your pets to be in heaven, surely they will be there. But when we get to heaven, I mean, and in the earth made new, we know there'll be a lion and a lamb, be all kinds of fantastic animals. They just will. So there'll be animals, but whether it's your little Mr. Smuffy, I don't know 100%. Either way, I don't think we'll be disappointed. I'm guaranteeing you that's correct. Ryan asks us this. Can you explain why it seems like we're not able to have interactive conversation with God, but we're supposed to be intimately connected with Him? Seems like it's more of a long-distance relationship. That's an interesting question. Mm, yeah. Sure enough. How is it that it seems we can't have interactive communication with God? Well, I, th- I think we can. I would suggest exactly the same Absolutely. thing. I think you can. Prayer is not a monologue. It's a dialogue. You speak to God, you hear from God. Now, I don't mean it's just like a conversation, although some people would say that it is. You grow in that. might have a little bit to do with how you are wired and how you function. But you pray, God hears. You talk, God responds. Prayer isn't just so that you can run off at the mouth. Prayer is so that you can also take time to hear God. What happens in prayer is this exchange takes place, this interaction takes place, where, where God starts to impress upon you more and more his will and his, his way. 
You know, it's not like, good morning, God, how are you? God says, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? I don't think it's anything like that. Not hearing his voice. No. And God will speak, God will communicate. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, maybe not hearing an audible voice from God, but God may impress you of a certain passage of Scripture. He may impress a thought in your mind. Uh, You know, you you have that little sense in your heart. The Holy Spirit uh, speaks to you in different ways. And God may speak to you through another person throughout the day. And so you may not be hearing audible things, but you can see and hear the voice of God uh, in the ways that he has chosen. Now, here's what I would say is I don't think that God would say very much to us that he hasn't already said in the Bible. And so everything, every situation you're facing, every difficulty you're having, every obstacle you're coming up against, in some form or fashion, has been dealt with through the Scripture. So at this point in Earth's history, uh, God is not choosing to speak audibly to people. uh, And so he speaks to us through his Word, and he wants us to trust that Word. But certainly, you can have an intimate relationship with God without seeing him, without hearing his audible voice, but he, in many ways, makes very clear that his presence is near. I love that point. And when you read the Bible, you are hearing the voice of God. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Trelina asks us this. What does the Bible say about astrology? Now, nothing I, good. Nothing good at all. In Isaiah eight nineteen, and when they say unto you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Don't go after those types. Listen to and seek after instead the God of heaven. Look, Capricorn and Aquarius and Pisces and whatever all of that is, is fiction. It's just a work of fiction. I read recently that it's coming back into vogue, I guess, because of social media. I don't know. You don't want to have anything to do with that. Nothing at all. You want to know the future? Talk to God. You want to understand what's in the stars? That's not even the right way to put it. You go to the Bible and read the Bible to find out what God's message for you is today. Oh, oh, you're a Sagittarius. Well, I'm a Leo. We are compatible. No. No. That's right. No, no, that's right. right. No, no, no. And don't be confused with astronomy, which is the scientific study of the stars. Nothing wrong with that. But the when you're tr- thinking about astrology, that's where I'm trying to get some kind of spiritual significance out of those things. And, you know, in the Bible, there's another passage, Isaiah 47, where God is speaking to a group of people who for a long time have put their trust in those things. And notice what he says to them. He says in uh, Isaiah 47, we'll start in verse 12, Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Now here's what he, where he says it. Let now the astrologers and the stargazers and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble the fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame, and it shall not be a coal to warm by. So not only will they not deliver themselves, but they cannot deliver you. They can't do for you what God does for you. Many times people seek this stuff because they've denied or they've rejected the presence of God in their life. So don't get caught up with that stuff. You have the power of the Bible, the power of God, the power of prayer. That's all you need. Amen and amen. 
Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fun. It's always fun. We're looking forward to seeing you again next time. With West Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.